Welcome to State of the State, the monthly roundup of policy and research for the state of Michigan, brought to you by the Institute of Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State University and Russ White and our friends here at MSU Radio Studios. I'm Arnold Weinfeld, Associate Director for the Institute, and joining me today is our co-hosts and Institute Director, Dr. Mac Grossman, and economist, Dr. Charlie Ballard. Our guest today will be Nick Pigeon, Director of the Michigan Campaign Finance Network. The network is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that works to assist the public in understanding the role of contributions to politicians through transparent, timely, and fact-based research and analysis. We will be discussing the recently passed financial disclosure legislation passed by the Michigan legislature. And speaking of the Michigan legislature, uh, they broke uncharacteristically early for the year. Um, left uh, before Thanksgiving or just after Thanksgiving. Um, so uh, wh- why'd that happen, Matt? Yeah, we've got a very long holiday break here <laughs> uh, at our full-time legislature. Uh, the, uh, the immediate cause was uh, the lack of giving immediate effect to legislation that they uh, wanted uh, to pass before the Democratic presidential primary, the exciting contest between <laughs> Joe Biden and other uh, <laughs> that uh, is to take place in the spring. Uh, and in order to get that done in time, they had to break early. Uh, but of course, as we've been previewing, they waited on the election results uh, when uh, the Democrat majority, Democratic majority lost uh, to uh, seats temporarily uh, to mayoral election victors, uh, and that left the House chamber evenly split, uh, which is not as uh, good for passing additional legislation. So the trade-off there was get uh, that presidential primary early uh, and uh, not have to deal with that 50-50 legislature for a little bit uh, versus uh, try to, to trudge through, and they decided to go early. So, yeah, so as you noted, uh Two things happened there. One was the need to uh, adjourn early. So legislation such as not just the presidential primary, but the earned income tax credit, uh, the reduction in retiree tax benefits, all of those would go into uh, effect uh, with some immediacy uh, before the end of the year. But then we do have that complication now of where the House Democrats lost two seats um, to candidates, to representatives who wound up winning their mayoral election. So now, as you noted, it's 54-54, and there's some rumors uh, floating around the Capitol that uh, the House, at least, uh, will be taking an extended break. Uh, the governor has uh, moved that we have special elections in late winter and early spring. Um, what are your thoughts or perspective if uh, the legislature were to take an even more extended break going into the new year. Any implications for the Democrats as we move into an election year? Well, we should keep in mind that Michigan uh, meets an abnormally long amount of time uh, for legislatures uh, nationwide. I was just in Indiana where there's only an internship program in the spring because there's only a legislature really going in the spring Uh, Of course, I also just visited Texas recently where they only come every two years for a few months unless they they are extended uh, by the governor. So um, it's not not abnormal to have to 
to, to put uh, all of your work into a smaller amount of time. Uh, and the Democrats have had one of the most productive uh, years uh, that we've seen in the legislature in terms of passing legislation in a long time. So uh, a slowdown won't necessarily hurt them uh, politically, I don't think, although, of course, it does give Republicans an easy uh, political message uh, to say that they, they gave up and went home. And uh, any do nothing Democrats, do nothing Democrats, <laughs> any any thoughts, you know, uh, it comes to my mind and I hate to put it on the table, but uh, you see any calls for a part time legislature coming out of this? Well, immediately I got a, a call from a reporter uh, on the day the legislature closed that the Republicans were reintroducing this uh, this uh, proposal um, to, to be timed well. Uh, with this uh, with this decision to say, well, if you don't need it this year, why do we need to come uh, every year all of the time? So those those will come up. I don't know, you know, how much traction uh, that will gain, but as a political message, it certainly works uh, for the moment. Uh, now, Charlie, despite uh, the political comings and goings, uh, the economy seems to be doing uh, fairly well. Uh, I don't even feel like we've had a soft landing. Uh, we just keep uh, moving along here. So even though the Democrats might have some political issues uh, here in Michigan, um, can they move forward uh, with a platform of saying, hey, the economy's in great shape? Well, certainly um, the Biden campaign is running TV ads now uh, saying about oh, we're creating a lot of jobs and um, various other things. Uh, we've commented on this more than once um, that to the pleasant surprise of me and a lot of other economists, the this this economic cycle, uh, the American economy has been remarkably resilient despite strong efforts by the Federal Reserve to uh, slow things down. And um, the economy continues to grow. Price, uh, inflation has not stopped, but it has moderated very significantly relative to what it was not that many months ago. Um, part of the, the good news here, I mean, how can, how can you make all these things happen at once? One reason is that productivity has done pretty well. Worker productivity has been increasing at a pretty, uh, pretty fast clip in the last year or so. And that gives you a little bit of extra room because then you can your economy can grow and you don't have to have the pressure on prices that comes when there are too many dollars chasing too few goods. So overall, a pretty good um, picture. And with Democrats as the incumbent power uh, party, you would think that that would be good for them. And yet public opinion surveys suggest that a lot of voters are still pretty grumpy about um the the economy uh, the economist looks at the numbers and say says hey inflation has moderated a great deal uh joe and jane sixpack say uh you know prices are still pretty high so um whether this is a good news for the incumbent party is uh well i guess we'll we'll find out in about 11 months well as you noted perception perception is everything um you know, in terms of prices being high, I got gas for two ninety nine the other day. Gasoline is is way down, and that's uh, that's uh, one of the prices that people pay the most attention to because it's just about the only price where, as you drive down the street, you see these gigantic signs showing the numbers. Uh, 
and it's something that most of us use regularly. So that, that's that's uh, good news uh, in terms of consumer attitudes. Uh, now, people are going to notice that. Now, I will say today I, I drove by and it's back up to 327, and it just fascinates me. You know, years ago we used to hear a lot of noise when gas prices moved 5 or 10 cents a day. Now they move 25 cents a day and nobody says anything. Uh, fascinating to me how that's gone, how the American public has gotten used to uh, rising, uh, quickly rising, or, or lowered lower gas prices. Well, the, the, that's that's right. And gas prices are much more volatile than most other prices. Most other uh, th- There's a lot of stickiness in a whole lot of markets that keeps the prices from changing very much. Gasoline is not one of those. It, it responds very quickly to changes in either supply or demand. Uh, and at least one piece of good news is that I think I don't hear so much anymore what people used to say, well, gas prices always go up and they never come down. They, they go up and they come down and then they go up and then they come down. You talked a lot about the national economy here. I'd like to talk about Michigan's economy because the perception is is that we're, we're still not doing very well, especially when uh, one of the more recent initiatives of the governor is this uh, Grow Michigan uh, Council that leaves one with the impression, you know, that you know, we're getting older, we're getting poorer, um, and there's enough evidence to certainly back back that up. Uh, and as we see some initial reports from that, the work of that, uh, the work of that group, uh, it looks like we're already breaking down into, into our partisan camps with uh, recommendations that will call for um, more investment in education um, and other areas, which of course means raising taxes. Uh, and uh, we should stop really beating around the bush and just call it what it is. But what? Wh- how do you see Michigan's economy in, in all of this in the next six months to a year? I see Michigan's economy in the next six months to a year in the same light that I have seen it for, for decades. We prospered phenomenally with the, the boom of manufacturing and autos in particular back in the middle of the 20th century. And in the last several decades, we haven't done nearly as well. Um, we have a, you know, the states that have done best in this century are the states with highly educated populations. You look at Massachusetts, uh, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, California. Michigan is below the national average in measures of uh, educational attainment. Uh, and we, you know, autos used to be a quarter of our economy. Now autos is 6% of our economy. And unlike Wyoming and uh, North Dakota and Alaska, we can't lean on a whole lot of oil and coal and gas wealth. And unlike New York and New Jersey, we can't lean on Wall Street. So we, in 2022, we were 38th among the 50 states in per capita personal income. Um, it's a, and our population, as we noted in a recent podcast, our population has been essentially flat in the 21st century. Uh, we're not poor, but we haven't grown as rapidly as other states. That's, uh, that's just true. And I think, uh, all of these efforts to grow Michigan make sense to me, but it's not going to be fixed by next Tuesday. This, these are long-term issues with an aging population with, an economy that depends heavily on manufacturing, which has been in relative decline for 60 or 70 years, um, you don't fix those immediately. This is a long-term issue. 
Matt, I'd love to get your perspective. You just noted that you've traveled recently to Indiana and Texas. You have colleagues across the country. You're also a small business owner yourself. Um, how do you see our economy as compared to uh, other states or what your colleagues are facing across the country? Well, as Charlie said, most of the uh, phenomenon are, are structural between uh, states uh, in terms of population uh, and economics. Um, the research that I reviewed shows no real relationship between uh, state partisanship and economic outcomes uh, or any obvious policy levers uh, and changes to states' policy trajectories and po uh, population trajectories or economic trajectories. So uh, maybe if we gave them decades, uh, we might we might get uh, some difference. Um, but there, there is no kind of easy, easy fix there. And most of the things are kind of structurally built in. I do think politically it's interesting how big the disconnect is. Uh, first of all, on the national economy, as Charlie said, consumer sentiment is still lower than it should be, according to uh, basic economic statistics. Uh, even at the, the state level, what you see is uh, that state officials are actually doing better in terms of uh, public approval than you would think uh, from their uh, public judgments of the economic performance of the state relative to other states. So there's uh, kind of a, a disconnect now uh, between the economic factors and the political factors. Interestingly, that is true worldwide. So the good news, if you're Joe Biden, you can say, well, Joe Biden's approval is low, but not that low, according to international factors. The economy here is bad, but not that bad, according to international factors. The bad news is incumbent parties are losing everywhere, left and right. Uh, if you were around, mostly left, right over in what Western but Europe, not, but not only that. if you were in charge in this post-COVID economy, you are losing uh, ground in elections almost worldwide, and that uh, mirrors something that happened after the Great Recession as well. Whoever was in power at the time uh, uh, lost uh, as a result. Um, so you know, good news is for Biden is he's looking a little bit better than his. Uh, for example, he actually has the highest approval rating in the G8. Uh, so, wow. oh, looking great relatively. But bad news is all those people are losing in the elections that have been held so yeah, far. Yeah, if you if you can compare yourself to Rishi Sunak and Emmanuel Macron, you, you You're things good. are great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's fascinating. The highest approval rating in, in the G8. Um, anyway, anyway around that for these folks that are, you know, see what's going on? I mean, you know, President Biden obviously sees what's happening around, around the rest of the world. If, if you were his uh, consultant, uh, what would you tell him? That's why we're in the business of just researching rather than <laughs> actually right? trying to uh, tell them what to do. Because as Charlie said, they're running some ads to try to talk up the economy. But if you do that, you run the risk of people saying you're out of touch. Uh, if you do the opposite and you say things aren't great here, all of the things that we still need to do, then people say, why haven't you done them? You're in charge. So it doesn't leave a, a great uh, message uh, as the incumbent other than the other guy's worse, uh, which is what we're going to see. Well, uh, and with that, I think uh, we'll move on to our guest now, uh, Nick Pigeon, as I noted. Not the other guy. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> as I noted, Nick is director of the Michigan Campaign Finance Network. He's also a MSU graduate and a former fellow of the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research. Nick, welcome to the program. Why don't you tell us uh, a bit about your organization 
and in particular uh, the views and perspective on the recently passed financial disclosure legislation. Sure, sure. So, well, thank you for having me. Well, uh, the Michigan Campaign Finance Network uh, started in 1996, as you uh, opened up with, with the goal of uh, getting information to the voters, you know, specifically about um, campaign finance and uh, looking into matters related to you know, how our legislators are uh, raising money. And uh, we feel that you know, a transparent legislature and giving the most amount of information to the public uh, better serves them when they're uh, making a decision in the polls, as we've been talking about this coming November, and um, when they are making their decisions in the polls. Um, and uh, as you were uh, talking about, um, you know, there was this issue uh, last election, um, voters had to vote on Proposal 1, right? And at Proposal 1 passed 66% of the vote, um, that said, listen, um, Michigan and Idaho are the only two states that uh, don't have a law that forces our uh, legislators to have to disclose their personal finances. And so Proposal 1 passes 66% of the vote, which we talked about. Uh, there's not many things that pass uh, or that 66% of Michiganders agree on. But they agree on having our legislators having to disclose you know, where their personal sources of income come from. Um, and so the Campaign Finance Network has been tracking this since January and uh, the legislature really has not addressed this issue, and it was the last thing they had addressed uh, in this session. We were talking about them ending session early, and uh, at 2.30 in the morning, uh, I think it was before or a little bit after Thanksgiving, as you mentioned, uh, this is the last thing that they addressed, having to pass this bill. So there, was, um, there were two packages that were kind of um, being circulated. So there was the one backed by leadership, uh, Senate Bill 613 through 616, um, that were sponsored by Senators Moss and Singh. And uh, there was another version that was being backed by um, a few members not in leadership in the House, uh, Representative Skaggs, Representative Burns, um, that kind of went a little bit further, specifically with this issue that uh, a lot of journalists and a lot of people have been speaking about, about uh, spousal disclosure, right? So um, in the law that was passed and that uh, leadership backed, um, you know, uh, assets could be transferred to a spouse pretty easily. And, um, you know, there were many exemptions when it came to, you know, how if the spouse was the only person that had control over an asset, how much of that would have to be disclosed by the legislator himself or herself. Um, so, you know, this they gaveled down a lot of amendments that were uh, in that more that bill that kind of went further. And uh, there was not really any discussion on the floor, you know, for this legislation that a lot of people in the state cared about. And, um, you know, we've been tracking this since the beginning of the year. And, you know, as it was passed, this bill kind of falls short to many other states. So it took a, took the legislature a year to enact a bare minimum of what 66 percent of the voters of the state of Michigan approved last november is that what i'm hearing you say i i, I would say so and, and, and you know to be fair right all they had to do was pass a bill that did meet the minimums the that minimum. were in proposal one but and to be fair again th there were a few things that went further right so the original proposal one did not require uh these standards in that um people running for office that they would have to fill out the same disclosure form so they did add that there's some representatives that argue well listen now we we're of course we're extending this to the people who are trying to take our seat um and there's that whole discussion uh and there was no spousal disclosure requirement in 
the original Proposal 1 mm-hmm. language. But, you know, there were a lot of people voicing concerns about how far this went. Um, you know, there is the the fine for knowingly filing uh, an inaccurate report is, I believe, $1,000. Um, and, you know, there's not really any other repercussions. There was discussion of making it so um, a legislator couldn't be seated if they didn't, you know, fill out their forms. Um, you know, th- there's not much teeth to spill and there wasn't any time for it to be on the floor and for people to discuss it. So this, uh, so beforehand, we were 48th in the, in the nation, as I understand it, in financial disclosure. This moves us to 40th, 47th. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't seem like we've gone very far uh, in uh, requiring some things that other states have been doing for a long time. Yeah, I've been asked a few times to say, okay, well, now we were 48th right, well, and uh, there was a few, you know, a lot of the transparency organizations have put us pretty dead last compared to uh, the rest of the country. Um, I'm not sure where, you know, where this puts us, you know, in rankings of transparency. What I do know is that this this law, is, you know, a lot of the things that are in it are weak compared to the rest of the country. I mean, you know, our, our legislators won't have to put a dollar amount on you know, how much they're making from different sources of earned and unearned income. In many other states, they'll have to, there'll be a categorical disclosure, right? So I made five to $25,000 from this certain source. Um, all our representatives will have to do is say, okay, if I made $1,000 or more from this source, here's the name of that, here's the contact information, um, and that's it. Yeah, just a just a little story. I, I think I, I, I told, told Matt this, I... Uh, I moved a few years ago, and so we're still shedding, and uh, I found a box of binders, and it was uh, nearly every memo I'd written uh, when I was a staffer on the House Democratic Policy staff. And lo and behold, 30 years ago, as uh, term limits was approaching, I had a series of memos to uh, leadership about financial disclosure and uh, um, how maybe if we move forward on some financial disclosure, we may be able to mute some of the um, growing discontent uh, amongst the public. And yet here we are 30 years later passing the bare minimum. Here we are 30 years later adjourning early, maybe not meeting until, I don't know, special elections are held in the House. Um, You know, it's been known to say history repeats itself. So it will be interesting to see how how this current uh, situation between passing a bare minimum on financial disclosure, between adjourning early and maybe not coming back to do the people's business until late winter or early spring, impact the mood of the public going into the November elections. So I think the theme here is that Michigan in Michigan things change very gradually. <laughs> the uh, the economy is is uh, moving ahead at a at a, a gradual pace, and uh, financial transparency for our legislators is moving at a. Uh, I guess I would say glacial pace is what it sounds like. Although maybe the glacier moved a little bit faster this this year. Well, let me play devil's advocate a little bit and ask if it's really true that transparency is going to have those benefits that Arnold claimed 30 years ago that, um, uh, you know, we think it's going to help 
the the public see government in action. Um, but the history is not so good there. A lot of times when we pass things that um, show the public what's going on in, in government, they actually trust in government goes down. We see more negative news stories um, citing uh, things happening uh, in in government that look suspicious. So so why why is this a good trend that that we should we should hope for more transparency if it's going to give us a bunch of negative news articles and more reasons to hate politicians. Sure. No, no, absolutely. And that's something I've kind of considered. I mean, you know, here at the network, we always believe that just more transparency is better and that giving voters the information they need to properly engage as an electorate is just always better on its face. Um, There's, there's a lot of questions about, you know, what this is, what this disclosure is going to look like. I mean, the bill was pretty mum about specifics on, listen, the secretary of state, you know, they're in charge of making these available online. Uh, And really the, the only enforcement mechanism in this law is that, okay, complaints can be made um, in regards to these filings by the public. You know, these are furnished online. We don't know how they're going to be out how they're going to be furnished online or how available they're going to be. And then the public makes a complaint and then the secretary of state has to respond to that. You know, if the only thing that we're going to see from this, if people aren't paying attention to, you know, the good disclosures, right. Or people, you know, our representatives are, you know, doing these disclosures and they're filing them on time. But the only thing that we pay attention to are, okay, well we found this complaint and this person didn't do it right. Like you're saying, uh, you know, just that one example could make the public, um, you know, feel less good about their legislators in Lansing just because of one error in someone's complaint form. And, of course, there's uh, still the issue on the table, the Freedom of Information Act and how the legislature and the administration, uh, executive administration, um, are exempt from many of the things that uh, others are not. Um, That's been an ongoing issue uh Democrats have said, you know, they want to fix that. And yet here we are uh, one year into the uh, Democratic majority and that's still sitting out there. Uh, is the uh, Campaign Finance Network involved in any discussions on FOIA or any of your other organizations that you partner with? You know, uh, I mean, we're not we're not too focused on uh, the FOIA matter. I mean, you know, it is a part of this ethics legislation, this ethics package that we've been tracking, and I've, I've spoken to a few people about it. Um, you know, we in, in terms of what we've been hearing from the legislature and leadership in particular, um, you know, about this set of bills and about FOIA is that they're going to do more, you know, in the upcoming session. Well, if, you know, if you're not forced to, and, you know, this is the kind of initiative that we've seen so far with the transparency legislation, you know, we're not so sure what we'll see. And we already have, you know, not a lot of time uh, in the legislature for discussions to be happening. Um, you know, we'll have to see uh, what happens. And Matt, picking up on your perspective, uh, it would, if I was a legislator, you know, I might sit back and say, what difference does it make? You know, why should I pass uh, legislation to make uh, our finances uh, more open or to make uh, the process more 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 transparent because you seem to be indicating it doesn't make a difference people still think that they're all they're all crooks and they're all hiding something well people do make distinctions uh between uh politicians uh, still even though we might think that you know you can't you can do anything um uh that there there are still uh some 
uh, people do still lose political ground uh, from scandals, including financial scandals. Um, and the press still does uncover real scandals, as does the judicial system. Uh, so there, there, there is some um, measure of accountability, and these uh, kinds of processes can can help with that. But the dream that uh, transparency was going to lead to a more satisfied public, I think that uh, has has come and gone, and we we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't expect that. I will say this. I know that one of the uh, arguments as to more robust financial disclosure here in the state of Michigan uh, among state legislators, state legislators in particular, is that we really haven't had uh, a scandal involving um, bribery or those kinds of things amongst our state legislators. Not not that I'm aware among of. Among current. Among current. That is correct. <laughs> among for- Once they left, once they left, the former speaker, uh, w- w- once he left, uh, felt uh, he still needed to um, uh, be involved. Uh, yeah, w- but not, not while they were here. So uh, Well, as far as we know. As far as... Thank you, Charlie. (laughs) And on that note, we will uh, once again leave our suspicions to our our audience and uh, thank Nick for his work and for being here uh, with us today. Any other thoughts, uh, Charlie or Matt, as we move into uh, a new year? Well, I'll I'll toss out one. You mentioned taxes. Um, (laughs) There is, I have heard that there is a group that's trying to get signatures on a ballot initiative that would eliminate the property tax in Michigan and make it very difficult to make up any of those $17 billion a year of lost revenue. So if if that passes, uh, uh, say goodbye to roads and schools. That's my judgment. And then there's a a case that's being, uh, a federal case that's being heard before the Supreme Court today about a, uh, um, uh, which if the court rules in favor of the plaintiffs, uh, the federal government would have to give billions and billions of refunds of uh, taxes that they collected a few years ago. And so uh, we're, we're uh, how much debt did, did the federal government issue last year? Uh, something like $2 trillion and um, uh, debt to GDP ratio is the highest that it's been since the end of the Second World War. But we're, we're cutting taxes, which those who know me know that's not what I think is sound fiscal policy, but there you are. Well, Matt, as we move into uh, the holiday season and winter hibernation, leave us with a positive note. (laughs) (laughs) See, I was going to tell you that Michigan may get another Christmas present and have to redraw all of its districts within the first couple of months as people are uh, running again. Uh, But we'll just leave leave with happy holidays and uh, tell people to enjoy uh, the season. Happy holidays. Happy holidays, everyone, indeed. Uh, My thanks again to... Russ White and the staff here at MSU Radio Studios for their support of this program. Join us again next month on State of the State.